Church family, who's excited to be at church today? Anybody? Anybody excited to be at church today? Oh, of all the places that you could be, you are here, and I'm grateful that you are, and everything that's going on in our world, I think we need places like this to gather in the name of Jesus, to declare praise and worship back to Him, get back to the Word of God so that we can sense His presence and His peace that He offers, even in the middle of everything that's going on in our world. And I hope that you guys can be as excited about church today as what people are excited about the crate challenge that's going on all over social media right now. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, it's a crate challenge. I don't know if this is the same people who also did the Tide Pod challenge and also the Ice Plunge challenge. I don't know. I see a pattern here, but I'm not really sure what it is. If you haven't seen what the, if you haven't seen the crate challenge, they literally stack up like old school milk crates, milk crate cartons, and then they walk over them. And really, it's not a whole lot of fun whenever they actually do it successfully. It's fun when they fall and you know, and don't get hurt, of course. But maybe that says a lot about me. I don't know. But there is just the craze right now, and everybody's talking about it. And now I'm talking about it, so that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem that Jesus can solve. So let's pray. And we'll go from there, all right? Here we go. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity for us to gather in your house, of which you are the senior pastor and lead pastor of this congregation. Uh, for now and for all times, God, we just we ask that you would do what it is that only you can do. And Lord, as we talk about reconciling differences and, and how we can reconcile relationships, even after we've had a, a clean break away from one another, God, that you could teach us supernaturally that you could teach us and you give us the boldness and courage and the humility to be able to address all of the, the complications that come with relationships. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that, God, that your mercy is, is so alive and present today. And we thank you that you offer life. Amen. Amen. Well, we're beginning a brand new series called Clean Break, and just as you could probably tell by my prayer, it's all about reconciling differences. It's about reconciling relationships, and what I love about what we're going to talk about today, and Philemon, this is one of those letters that's so short that people just kind of write off as if it's not that powerful, but it really is. I invite you to go into the Word of God to Philemon. We're going to read all of verses, well, actually all of Philemon. And just so you have a little hint in case you don't have a device, if you're using just a good old-fashioned B-I-B-L-E like this, start from the right and then go to the left. If you start from the left and go right, it's going to take you a little while to get there. And if you start from the right and then you go left, if you hit Hebrews, slow down because it's the next letter right before Hebrews. And it's only one page in my Bible, so more than likely it's only one page in yours. So it's easy to miss. This is a phenomenal letter, again, about how to reconcile differences. And I don't know about you, but can, can we just have a show of hands say, do, I would just love to know more about how to reconcile like personal differences. Anyone? Am I the only one who needs help in this? And, and maybe if this, this, this letter would kind of find its way in other aspects of the world, this would be an incredible thing. Uh, as we kind of lean into this for the next three weeks. Now, I will let you know, today I'm really just going to scratch the surface. I'm going to dig way into it next week, and then in week three as well. But this week, I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface. You're going to get the tone of the letter. You're going to find out the main characters in the letter, and really the tension in the letter is really what I want us to, to walk away with, and also just the, the hope that I think what we see in verses one through seven. So let's read this together. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, 
to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Our love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you. And now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that, I, that he could take care of your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while is so that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is, a very, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Some things we, we see in this passage that can be unsettling for us is the topic of slavery. I don't know if you caught that from the reading, but Onesimus is a runaway slave. Philemon is the, the slave owner or manager. And Paul has had an instrumental connection with both of them. So now Paul is mediating between two people who have differences. And he's trying to do so on on the basis of the gospel. He makes appeals. We're going to see this more in the future. He makes appeals not on the basis of his his position, but yet he, he makes these appeals for the reconciliation to happen simply because they are brothers in Christ. So Paul now stands in the gap between both of them. And in the reading, Paul decides that he's not just going to hold Onesimus, although Onesimus could be very valuable to him in his place in chains, most likely as Paul is most likely enchained in Rome. There are a couple ideas. Maybe he's not in Rome, but most scholars believe that he's in Rome. But he knows that Onesimus is a runaway slave and that that he belongs in the house of Philemon. So now 
Paul is sending this letter before Onesimus gets there to make sure that once Onesimus gets there, that the relationship is reconciled. I don't know about you, but I've had many relationships in my life that have had clean breaks. Some not so clean breaks. I've had people who I've walked with and I walked and I laughed and I cried with for years. And yet there was something that happened that severed the relationship. Some of which have never been recovered. And sometimes it can never be recovered. But I think many times in life what we, what we tend to do is we can just write people off so fast. And we can just cut them out of our lives. And what Paul is trying to appeal to, to both Onesimus as, and as, as Onesimus is going back to Philemon. But also Philemon as he receives Onesimus. Paul is saying there's something more important than your differences. It's what you have in common. It's the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you should see each one another as brother and not slave and master. One of the challenges every time that we get into the Bible, one of the challenges that we see here is, and maybe you've kind of read into this already, and maybe you've asked this question. Why doesn't God condemn slavery? Why isn't that written in here? Why didn't... Why didn't the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to say, no, do away with this whole thing. This thing doesn't work. God's approach was, was different. His way of dealing with slavery was different, and slavery was different. By the way, there's estimates of 27 million people still in modern-day slavery. Whether it's debt slavery, like what we see in the Bible, sex slavery, are people just treated as property? So instead, instead of God just saying, don't do this, God does something more subversive. I invite you to go into your Bible, go to the left in your Bible, and I want to just touch on a couple passages that speak into this idea of slavery. These won't be on the screen. So this is Deuteronomy 15. Hold your place where you were. So Deuteronomy 15, all the way to the left, almost to the beginning. Of your Bible, Deuteronomy 15. This is what we're going to see is how God dealt with the issue of slavery, both in Old Testament and New Testament, and how God's approach to slavery was was one where He was changing their hearts, and then they would change their behavior, and then people would change their their mindset when it comes to slavery. By the way, their slavery was not like the slavery that we experienced in this country. There was no, this isn't man-stealing. In Exodus, those things are condemned. This isn't the type of slavery that that would happen where, where people were devalued. Instead, this type of slavery, just so we're clear, people would actually, if they couldn't pay their bills, they would ask to be a slave of someone else. And this could be somebody who was a doctor, a lawyer, or a politician even. That they would ask because they couldn't pay their debts, so then they would be enslaved to this person so that they would have their debts paid for. This is, a, this is how God dealt with these issues in Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 12. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. 
And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give this command today. So again, the, the debts were supposed to be canceled after six years. The seventh year, they were to go free. And not just to go free, empty-handed, but they were supposed to be full-handed. If the Lord blessed the master, then that, that master was to bless this former slave as now they were free on their seventh year. This is, of course, not what happened in our country. We have other references to this. A couple will fly through. In Ephesians, we'll see, go into the New Testament to Ephesians 6, verse 9. couple passages to touch on this. Ephesians 6, 9 says this, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So God is advocating for the fair treatment of slaves. Now, to Colossians. Colossians more than likely is the, the church in Colossae was a church that Philemon was connected to. So this is personal to him. Colossians 4.1 says this, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. So God has... This plan all along to deal with this issue. That this debt slavery would not just be prolonged year after year after year. And then it wouldn't go into a cycle. It wasn't devaluing the person. Instead, God was advocating for the right treatment and the fair treatment of everyone. And notice the language in, in Ephesians and in Colossians. Paul is reminding the masters. He says, you have to understand that I that, that God is the master. So just as God is giving fair treatment and right treatment to you, share that right treatment and fair treatment with others. And of course, this is not what has happened in our country. But just so we're clear, because oftentimes we can just project our own history onto biblical history, and it's not the same thing. It's not. And we're going to see this more as we go on, how God just has a special care in respect for Philemon, for Onesimus, and his family. Go back to Philemon 1, if you would, please. The letter begins with Paul, a prisoner in Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. It's believed that Timothy was there, but he's really just, he's not an equal part, but he's just kind of like, he's just helping Paul. But this was deeply personal to Paul. So most people believe that it was almost just a customary way of just saying, hey, it's from Paul and Timothy, but really that Paul really didn't have much, if any, part in writing this letter. Verse 2, we, we get into something that's important, and it's easy to miss, and especially when there's the introductory parts to a letter. And the reason why I think it's so important is because there's four different people groups who are mentioned at the onset of this letter. The letter is written to Philemon, our dear 
friend and fellow worker, to Apthea, says our sister. Scholars believe that this was Philemon's wife. And Occupos, it says our fellow soldier, and that is believed to be Philemon's son. And then did you see the other group at the end of verse 2? And the church that meets in your home. At first glance, we may look at this and say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, yeah, sure, the letter is written to Philemon. That makes total sense because he was the, the master in this, in this storyline. Like, that makes sense. But why is it that, that Paul would also write this, this very touching and personal letter, not to just Philemon, but also Philemon's wife and Philemon's son and also the church that meets in his home? Why would that be the case? The reason being is when Onesimus was coming back, it wasn't just a matter of being reconciled to Philemon, it was being reconciled to the whole church. Because Philemon wasn't just coming back for the runaway slave, instead he was coming back as what? A brother. So the reconciliation isn't just a personal thing between Philemon and Onesimus, instead it's reconciliation for the whole church. Sadly, churches have missed the boat on this, and they've, they've allowed a little bit of disputes happen between individuals, and instead of the reconciliation even being repaired with the individual, or maybe it was with the individual, but the church as, as a whole didn't gather together to bring these groups together so the church could become stronger. You and I could sit and talk for hours and hours and hours of churches that have failed and disbanded and divided and they've collapsed simply because of relational differences. Because people couldn't get along. This idea of of a clean break in relationships, it's something that we all deal with, but we just don't all deal with it well. So when we get into Paul's teaching, he's just lining this out so clearly for us. Now, thousands of years later, and now we can totally place ourselves in the tension of this moment. Not that we're Philemon and not that we're Onesimus, but we're the church. So there's something that all of us have to learn here, just like the church that was meeting in his home had to learn as well. So as the letter unfolds, we see the the central issue here is how well is Philemon, Philemon's wife, Philemon's son, and the church that meets in their home, how well are they going to embrace Onesimus when he comes back? Are they going to hold a grudge? Are they just going to be mad? Is Philemon going to make all sorts of demands on him? Are they going to stonewall him? Are they going to discount his, his testimony of giving his life to Christ? Are they just going to throw everything that Paul said just to the wayside and say, no, 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 you, you were a slave when you left and you're a slave now that you're returning? Or would they receive him well? In week three, historically, we're going to see just a glimpse Something that could be that they received him well and that his life was changed, that Onesimus' life was changed after this. As history records, some really cool things. 
So if Onesimus is welcomed back, he has to be welcomed back by the whole household, the whole church. You know, I've thought about this in, in a personal way, and, and I don't mean to dredge up negativity, and I'm certainly not trying to do that, but it's just trying to be realistic. Over the last year and a half, we've lost some people. And maybe one of those people are at home right now, and they're not at home because of COVID and what's going on. Maybe they're just home because they think that they just can't come back to the church because they think they left on bad terms, and now they're stuck at home. If, if you're at home and you're not here, I want you to know you're welcome to come back. We would love it if you would come back, wouldn't we, church? We want you to come back. We miss you. We're not the same without you. Verse 4, there's a transition in the text. Paul says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Now he's reflecting upon Philemon's life. He's reflecting upon the things that he's heard about Philemon. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. You see, the life of Philemon was a testimony. How will you be remembered? This is how, how Paul is remembering Philemon. And if we don't know anything else about Philemon, wouldn't this be amazing if this could be said of us 10 years, 20 years after we're no longer here on earth? That somebody could say of us, of our great faith and our love for the saints, that we were active in sharing our faith. And that, that our love brought somebody else great joy and encouragement because we refreshed the hearts of the saints. The, the challenge with this, of course, is not just for me to ask you a question, how will you re be remembered? And maybe right now you feel a little convicted because you're like, I just don't know that I would be remembered that well. If you don't like the answer, live in such a way to get a better answer. It's fairly clear. Probably saw that one coming. Verse 7, we're going to get into some of the elements of friendship. He says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So what does a friend do? A friend refreshes the wounded. A friend refreshes the wounded. A friend who has been radically changed by their vertical relationship with God Radically restores relationships with people. This is just something that is supposed to be just part of the Christian experience. 
that those of us who claim the name of Christ, that we are the reconcilers, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we would be the people who bring other people together, that we refresh people, not that we divide people, or that we gossip about people, or we slander about people, or we have malice towards people. That's what the world does. But followers of Jesus Christ are to be people who are friends even of sinners. That we refresh the wounded. True friends are, are rare these days, aren't they? I mean a true friend. Not a fair-weathered friend. Not the person who, you know, as soon as you tell them something personal, they're like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm out of here. I'm talking about the person who's willing to to sit in the mess with you. And that you have the courage and humility to tell them about what's really going on. Statistics are showing now that only 40% of Americans, that 40% of Americans have just one confidant or none at all. Only 40% of Americans have one confident or none at all. In 1990, the average American had between three to four deep friendships. Today, there's fewer than two, per the statistics. We live in a nation filled with people saying, don't you see me? Everything about social media is, don't you see me? People crying out, we have students crying out, we have... We have self-harm happening with teenagers these days. Everybody's crying out, don't you see me? What Paul is advocating to Philemon about Onesimus is when Onesimus comes back, make sure that, that you see him and that he knows that you love him and that he, that he knows that he is seen. Seen for who he is. The true change has happened in his life. But how do we get to the place where we are now where where friendships are are like non-existent? How do we get to this place? Ben Sace, in his book, Them, he says that, that we've just transformed into a nomadic and rootless people. We're nomadic. We just move from here to there and we're willing to uproot. Uproot, well, we just... Disagree with those, those church folks, so we're out of here. We're going to go to the next church. Until we disagree with them, then we're going to go to the next church. And I'm not trying to step on your toes, but I think it's pretty obvious. If you actually sit and talk to a lot of church people, particularly here, here in the South, that the amount of people who've actually been a part of five different churches is not that uncommon. Five or more churches. I think that says something into what Ben Sace is talking about in this book about being nomadic and rootless people. What he says and he advocates about is, is the main problem today in America is loneliness. And this idea of being nomadic and rootless is just making more of that issue prominent. Social scientists have identified four primary, primary drivers for human success or for human happiness. In life, four. They're really obvious, but why is it that we don't sense we don't have just this sense of of gratitude and thankfulness towards God, and and just happiness in our lives? Why is it that we don't have joy like we ought to? 
the four drivers for human happiness that the social scientist said is, one is, do you have a family you love and who love you? Do you have a family you love and that love you? Second, do you have a work that matters and a calling to benefit your neighbors? The third, do you have a worldview that can make sense of suffering and death? And the fourth, do you have friends you trust and confide in? The four primary drivers that those in social science are saying that, that adds to personal happiness, to experience a more plentiful life. Do you have a family you love? Do you have work that matters, that benefits more than just you? Do you have a worldview that can make sense of suffering and death? And do you have a friend that you can trust and confide in? Well, what's the takeaway here? Back to verse 7. Here's the takeaway. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. The way for us not to be nomadic and rootless people, if you even agree to that terminology, like the author, the, the way for us to move forward, if the social scientists are right and we do need friends to confide in, and that we, that we can be a trusted uh, ear for, if that's true, that we need to learn how to refresh the hearts of the saints. We need to, to know how to put together a meal train when somebody's having a baby or somebody gets COVID. We should be involved in one another's lives. We should be praying for one another. We should be just doing things just spontaneously, not because we're told to, just because we want to. If we see a brother and sister in Christ who, who we just really sense in the spirit that they're struggling with something, we should have the boldness and courage to ask them face-to-face, -face, not through text, not through social media, not through messenger, not through a DM, but to go face-to-face -face and say, hey, I could be way off on this. But I think the Lord's just revealing something about your life to me, and I want you to know that I'm here for you. Is there something you're struggling with? Is there something you're struggling with? Because I want you to know you're not going through this alone. I would love to know how to pray for you. Is it a financial struggle? What, what's going on? What, what's going on at home? Can I help with that? Oh, you have, you have other needs at the house because there's COVID that's, that's gone through your house right now. Or maybe it's somebody who's even outside of the church and they, COVID has just kind of ravaged their house. Maybe we could go in and do some yard work for them because they just don't feel up to it. Instead of being siloed in our own homes, maybe what we need to do, maybe the big picture is to learn like Philemon to refresh others. To refresh others because that's what friends do. What's so touching about this for me is the gospel makes, makes a friend, makes an enemy a friend and brings the lonely into family. This is, this is a gospel thing. This is space we should own. We shouldn't be waiting for somebody else to step in to do what it is that we are equipped and called to do. We're gospel people, amen? We're Jesus people, amen? We're the church, amen? 
Jesus is, he is our king and rightful ruler. Amen? He is the Lord of our lives. Amen? He's directing the affairs of everything going on in the world. Amen? He's the one who offers the, the most care that any of us could actually even experience on a personal level. Amen? He's the one who encourages and refreshes us day by day by day as we live in the Spirit. Amen? This is who we are. This is what we are. This is what the gospel makes us to be. The gospel makes an enemy a friend. We know this on our personal level. Because there was a time that every one of us was an enemy of God. That we were bent for hell. And that was, that's where we were going. We were going to be condemned for the sins that we had committed. For all the impurity, for all the bad thoughts, all the bad actions, and all the bad words. And just the, just the sinful inclination that's woven through all of us. But Jesus interceded on our behalf. That he did for us what, what we were powerless to do. That he stepped in. Knowing that was the answer. He humbled himself is what it says in Philippians 2. Taking the form of a servant. Notice that language. That the king of kings and lord of lords would take the, the form and position of a servant. And that then would go to the cross for sins that we've committed. So that whosoever shall believe in him may have eternal life. So that those of us who'd given our lives to Jesus could to live in the reality that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of us that we wouldn't be able to just read about what Jesus said in John 10, 10 about this abundant life, that we could literally have this abundant life. And that also that we could allow this abundant life to go to others. Notice in this passage... Verse 4 through 7. We're not going to get to verse 7, but through verse 6. Paul said this. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith. Notice what he says. Active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. What is he saying? That we're not going to have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ unless we also are sharing our faith. That we are telling people about the good news. That we're telling them about our testimony of faithfulness to God. You're telling people about God's faithfulness and His testimony and faithfulness to you and to them. And the faithfulness of God that we see in Galatians 3.28 where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one that are in Christ Jesus. 
that the good news that the gospel is for all. Notice that language. Galatians 3.28, Jew nor Greek, no matter of national status, slave or free, no matter of social status, male nor female, no, it didn't matter about your gender differences, that we're all one in Christ Jesus because the gospel is and was and forevermore will be for all. Because again, the gospel makes an enemy a friend and brings the lonely into family. You know, I look at what what Paul is is trying to do here. And in this, we're we can in this whole series, we're gonna find ourselves in a bunch of situations. We're going to find ourselves in some ways we're going to feel like Paul because we maybe have two friends or family members that are together and we feel like now we need to be the person, to, the conduit to open up to, to help reconcile that relationship. And that's okay. That's good. Some of us, are we're going to feel like, like Philemon. We're going to feel like somebody did us wrong. So we have a choice to make whether we're going to reconcile that difference. And then some of us are going to feel like Onesimus, where we're like, I know that's who I was, but I've changed now. Accept me for the person who I am now and not the person that I was. The beauty of the gospel is this. The gospel brings new life from a new heart. It doesn't matter what situation that you're in. It brings new life from a new heart. This is what was promised in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. Pointing to to the gospel. Pointing. Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would step on earth and die on the cross and resurrect, proving that He was God. We see this also in Ezekiel 36, 26. Another reminder, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your, you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And we see the fulfillment of this in Romans 10, 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you, are confe- that you confess and are saved. 